0: Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com, so please subscribe. We speak today to Mark Selby, Nickel Market Commentator and also CEO of Canada Nickel Corp. We talk about uh, pricing in the market, forecasts and the growing importance of Indonesia in the marketplace and the implications of that. We also talk about a few red flags that investors should be looking for when thinking of investing in the Nickel market. So enjoy the podcast. Mark, how are you doing? Good Matthew. We're here for our weekly catch-up. We are going to do this weekly we Nickel are. update. We're going to educate people about the world of Nickel.
1: I'm excited. Week two, week 2 from two. week 1.
0: Um, so we've agreed to talk about a few things this week because we've kind of, there's a yeah. lot of ground to cover. We're, we, most of us starting from fairly low base. Um, so, what's happened in the world of nickel this week?
1: Yeah, this week, um, as I thought last week, it was going to be sort of a sideways week, and that's really what's happened. Nickel prices have, I think, ticked up about one percent since we last talked, which is, you know, in the within the margin of error. Um, and yeah, no, we haven't seen any substantial moves with stocks, prices, or or anything sort of on the on the supply demand side. Um, the one thing that is is uh, you know, I'd encourage people to sort of keep an eye on is. Um, the price of ore from the philippines is continuing to tick higher so you know that that's a sign that you know that the chinese are still a little bit nervous about you know am i going to be able to have enough ore um, you know you know through the remainder of the year so that's that's the the, the bull scenario the the bear scenario is the um, you know, amount of you know increase in nickel pig, pig iron production coming from Indonesia, and, and you know I think that the you know the key piece of news this week is one of the I think more followed uh, nickel analysts um, you know took his medium term forecast down by about thousand dollars a ton from 2020 you know one through 2024. His long term price is still untouched, but you know it's a combination of the demand hit that we've seen um, uh, from COVID plus uh, you know this you know continued um, ramp up in Indonesian NPI. You know, which has caused him to sort of you know pull his price deck down um, in that in that intermediate period, and this is a person that uh, a lot of people follow.
0: So I mean, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because you China's kind of come back with a vengeance. We've said that they are getting back into production. They're they're ramping things up to get back into production. The the question was, would the West be buying the things that they're making? Right? So yes. That's, that's the kind of the big unknown at the moment. Um, what 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 were the sorts of things that the analyst was concerned about? Was it just that big question, or was there more to it?
1: No, I guess so. You know, in terms of the the near term, right? So China went through its big crunch in Jan, Feb, March. You know, we we saw indicators showing that you know the demand was going to come back, and, and yeah, I mean that uh, you know um, one of the Chinese firms just sort of published their May calculation of of demand, and that's actually up year over year know, where his concerns, you know, are, you know, we're now in the worst, we're now seeing the worst of the data coming from the rest of the world. So, you know, the rest of the world went into lockdown, you know, in March and April. And so, you know, we're seeing sort of the worst of that data. And, you know, unlike China, you know, there's not that sort of direct, you know, fixed asset investment that's, you know, they're going to start ordering steel next week in Canada, the United States and Europe. Um, you know, we're going to ha- it's going to be a slower process to get off the bottom. And I think we talked last week that, you know, it, w- what's, going to, what's going to happen is they're going to have to do more stimulus packages to get their economy regrowing. We think, you know, a lot of that stimulus is going to help things like the EV sector, um, but we are going to go through this valley where, you know, Chinese demand is going to be up year over year for the, you know, right through the rest of the year. But you know, demand from the rest of the world is going to be down significantly. You know, down like high single digits, and it has been down double digits um, through March, April. But again, I think we're through the worst of it now. So you know, everything should be starting to um, move higher. But as as I said, um, we won't get back to year over year increases from the rest of the world probably until year end at the earliest.
0: Okay. So there's been there's been a bit of setback. I'm just again trying to understand the things that the analysts are concerned about. You know, obviously the Indonesian. Orban. The um, and we talked last week about you know Tesla shifting the the shape and design of the battery in terms of you know non nickel batteries and you know yeah. I, I, was that was that in the conversation? Were those some of the factors quoted?
1: Oh yeah, that was the so that there was the demand side was one aspect of it, and this, the second aspect was this ramp up in Indonesian you know nickel pig iron production. So um, you know that when you take Indonesia and China combined, you know. It, it should double from 2018 through to 2025 and grow at a pretty healthy clip. Um, you've got um, three or four very large-scale projects that are, are continuing to add, you know, pretty pretty substantial amounts of, of um, uh, nickel production capacity. So it's that it's that sort of you know better visibility about this pipeline of nickel pig iron projects delivering mm-hmm. nickel into the market that you know it was the other sort of key you know key piece. Uh, of of concern for you know for that analyst the thing and i i think i highlighted this on on our discussion last week is uh, you know again the problem is is you know nickel demand is is higher than the other metals and analyst he's better than than most in terms of having realistic demand numbers you know but even with with a drop down you have to compensate for that you know the market will rebound you know in a pretty meaningful way after that so you have to put some very high demand numbers when you come out of the rebound in future years so that sort of the the demand growth over that period you know reflects kind of you know three to four hundred thousand tons from EVs plus two to three percent trend demand growth and so that's a good one or two percentage points slower than you know what trend demand growth has been for the past 10 to fifteen years so you know, and if you add that extra 1% or 2% in, then you get to deficits at, at the end of the year. So, you know, I, I'm glad I don't have his job and having to try and sort of, you know, guess what that 23 24 25 demand is. But that's really, you know, the two factors is okay. Indonesian plus Chinese NPI plus overall demand growth, you know, where, is that, where are those two lines going to uh, cross or not
0: cross as we move forward. Well, I suppose the kidneys being being an analyst. you get to change your mind every quarter. Quite frankly, because new data box. comes in, right? <laughs> um, but let, let's talk about something we again we've talked about a few, you know, a few months ago, which was yep. uh, the impact of the steel market on nickel. It kind of shows you what well, gives you some clues and some, some trends. Like I saw some data which came out which said that you know China and Indonesia, which has been historically you know not a significant player in the market. And that represents 65 I think it's around yeah sixty 65 percent of global production for 2020. I mean that's
1: huge. Oh yeah know well China plus Indonesia maybe stainless steel would probably be close to that number and I think by 2025 you know that's where you're looking at Indonesia you know on its own being close to 45 percent of of global supply. so in in you know um, you know I've got a chart that I use in my nickel presentations talking about the fact that, you know, New Cal, Philippines, Indonesia, as a group, control just over 50%, um, which is as much um, as OPEC control at its peak. You know, and given um, you know, Mr. Friedland's nickel is the new gasoline um, sort of theme here. Um, you know, they're going to have a lot of power over the over the market. So, um, and and so when you then factor in that you know huge amount of growth coming from Indonesia, then. You know their their share of, of global supply is going to increase dramatically because literally Indonesia is the only place we're going to have um, supply growth. You know most of the other um, uh, production from most of the other regions globally has been shrinking um, over time, and, and we don't expect that trend to slow down um, dramatically. Um, um, you know you know for the foreseeable uh, future.
0: Okay, well let's let's talk about Indonesia. Okay, it's, it yep. is becoming more and more important. For nickel and therefore, you know, steel market as well. Um, yeah, I'm trying to understand why now, because you know those deposits have been known since the '60s and the '70s. It's this is not new news. So, what what's driving that?
1: Yeah. So I, I've always referred to Indonesia as sort of the for a decade or so as the Saudi Arabia of nickel. You know, the bulk of the sort of developed reserves in the world globally uh, are in. Um, Again, it's not everywhere in Indonesia, it's just in a few islands. It's Sulawesi and then a few other islands uh, nearby. And so uh, on those islands, you've got a bunch of large reserves, most of which were discovered back in in the 60s and 70s. INCO uh, had concessions over most of the island of Sulawesi at that time um, and and drilled a bunch of this stuff off. Um, And then as well, uh, you know, the, the anything else was discovered sort of in the early 2000s. So yeah, no, the, the stuff's been there for a long time. And What's really shifted is, you know, over 50 years is the the importance of the stainless steel market. So you know, it's gone from being sort of you know, kind of one third of stainless, one third of nickel demand, you know, in 1968, you know, to being more than two thirds of, of of nickel demand going forward. And and what, you know, what the Chinese, you know, sort of with the development of nickel pig iron, um, you know, what they realized is that they're not in the Nickel business, they're in the stainless steel business. And, you know, what they needed to think about and a company like Qing Shan from, you know, day one um, was really smart about is, you know, we need to make, you know, the lowest cost stainless steel uh, possible starting with the resource in the ground. So, um, you know, the, 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 the guy who runs Chingshan is, you know, I think uh, one of the visionaries in, in this space and he quickly realized, okay, you know, math-wise, the best place to do is basically put a stainless steel mill on top of a laterite deposit in Indonesia. And starting in 2007, when he first started talking about it, um, you know, that had been the plan all along and, and they realised that vision in 2015 um, and, and built, you know, one of the largest, you know, the largest Nickel production and integrated stainless steel facility um, in the world. That one single plant produces, more stainless steel than most countries, other than uh, Ch- China and Japan, you know, to give people a, a sense of the scale of it. So, um, you know that that's, that was the big driver.
0: So, and what and what are the implications of this? You know, we, we, you know, the, you've you've got a, you've got the Chinese teaming up with the Indonesians. Yep. It's it's about steel. It's not necessarily about nickel. Um, yeah, there's big money required to put these things together. Um, what's it yep. mean for the rest of the world?
1: Yeah. So it's been, you know, it, it's, it's it's reshaped a, a big chunk of, of the Nickel and the stainless steel industry during that timeframe, and, and it's going to continue to do so going forward. So, you know, again, what he realised was that, you know, Nickel, pig iron, ferro nickel, you know, that if you just add on uh, AOD uh, and a caster, um, then you have a stainless steel mill. So, um, you know, it, he realised it wasn't much of a technology jump and that's where people I think think there's some mysterious technology. They basically took stuff off the shelf. And, and put it in place. Um, so by by doing that, um, you know they became. You know, you've seen stainless steel production in most other regions, parts of the world, shrink because the combination of Indonesia and China, you know, is just just, just that much more cost effective than, than in a bunch of other regions. Um, and now, you know, so they've sort of squeezed the rest of the world. You know, during this process, um, they're now the, the battle is actually going to be between Indonesia and China. Um, you know what? Um, the only mistake they made through the whole process is they, they failed to realise that you know, a lot of um, incumbents, particularly even in China, wouldn't be happy that their businesses would be squeezed by this new source of supply. So you actually saw tariff barriers go up all around the world, including China, against um, stainless steel from, coming from Indonesia. So they've had to shift so that they're not producing nearly as much stainless steel as they have capacity for. And are going to ship nickel pig iron into China um, rather than stainless steel. And so, you know, what the combination now of, of this continued growth in nickel pig iron from Indonesia with the the Indonesian ore band, which is pushing up prices from uh, to the Philippines, it means that the margins for the smaller scale standalone producers in, in China are really gonna get squeezed over the next few years. So um, you know that's the thing is is you need to you know Indonesian production is going to grow but Chinese NPI and stainless production you know we, we may see that actually shrink over time as the, as the higher cost smaller scale producers get squeezed out of the market and again if I'm Ching Shan and I can produce at lower cost in Indonesia versus producing in China I'll you know I'll just produce in, in, in China it's for right, producing Indonesia you know all you know all day long so that's you know, that's, that's sort of the, the next dynamic that's really going to happen in, in, in the stainless steel market.
0: So, if I bring, if I bring it back to me um, yeah. as, an, as an investor, right, because that, that's, yeah. that's big, it's a um, state-owned enterprise. There's no way of kind of getting, getting involved with that. How do I, as an investor, make money? So, where, where does the market go from here and what are the opportunities that I'm looking for elsewhere in the world?
1: Yeah. So, the key thing is, you know, given sort of we've got this big blow, Block of, of 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 production and costs, you know, that operate a certain cost in the in the nickel space and the stainless steel space is you need to look at okay where are the places um, around that where you can still generate massive um, massive free cash flow because you know having this large you know um, source of supply if you're to the left of it on the cost curve then that you know that gap on the cross curve means you're going to make a lot of money. So again, you know the steel business is you know globally is is like just regular carbon steel is a zero profit zone in most places. But you know BHP and Rio Tinto make the bulk of their profits from selling iron ore into that very low profit um, uh, steel sector. The same thing in the in the nickel space. You know with steel and then EVs coming is you know, as a Nickel producer, you want to find a way to produce the highest value, lowest cost product to basically feed into that chain. So that, um, you know, again, before Nickel sulphide producers had one option is you just had to sell to the smelter refinery. And because it was an oligopoly, you know, you as a miner got squeezed. Now, you know, there are multiple channels between stainless steel, between EVs, um, you know, and so, you know, if you can help um, you know, this the, your downstream partner. You know, make a little bit more money than they otherwise would. Then, then hopefully you capture the bulk of that value. So, um, you know, that's you know, that's where you need to, to look for those mining companies that have, um, you know, are a are, are, are thinking about that and b you know are able to tailor the products a little bit to be able to sort of fit into that uh, that, that that market reality.
0: Okay, so well, let, let's break that down because that's really, really important yeah. here. Okay, because um, you know, we again, we, we we talked in the past about um, the way you insert yourself into a supply chain and where you maximise yeah. the value. If you're feeding into stainless steel, you're kind of you're slightly out out of control here, and that's why people are talking the language of, you know, our nickel going to go into the battery revolution. That's where we're inserting ourselves because that's where the money is. That's where the margin is. So, for yep. the sake of people listening to this, it's probably important to break down, if we will. I, know we, I think we've agreed to get into some level of detail next week or the week after on the vocabulary. Yep. But for the sake of today, um, we've got sulfides, right? Which yep. is about, about yep. 20, somewhere between 28, 30% of the market. Yep. Right? About that. And then we've kind of got laterite, yeah. which is the rest, right? So let's, let's yep. break those down for people and say, you know, the, the pros and cons of each.
1: Uh, so um, for laterites, they're very low cost to mine because it's basically dirt that you dig out of the ground, and and a, a laterite right mining operation, you know, in the Philippines and Indonesia is literally a few trucks, a shovel, and then you put it on a barge, which puts it on a boat, and that boat goes to China. You know, that's you know that's what's involved in, in laterite right mining. Where the laterite right gets tricky is you have to build a big plant um, because you either have to. You can't upgrade the ore at all. You basically have to dump it all into a furnace um, to melt it and pull the nickel out, or you have to dump it all into a vat and dissolve it all, and then pull the nickel out um, that way. And so, both of those steps require a big chunks of capital. Now, um, and, and that's always, you know, why these things were slow to develop is they required a fairly significant investment to be able to make that because they were in remote locations. Um, because laterite deposits tend to be found around. Um, the tropics to create the conditions to form the make the laterite actually happen. On the sulfide side of things, um, you know the mining is, is tends to be trickier. Again, you know higher grade underground mines. You have to build a mine, dig a deep hole in the ground to get it. Uh, larger scale open pit mines, like we have at Crawford, and, and which we'll get there is, is an open pit. Um, the advantage is you you start out with a lower grade material, but with a very you know w- for not a lot of dollars you can build you operate a mill again the, the mills themselves aren't cheap but um, that's the big chunk of the cost for a sulfide operation is um, you build the mill and then you can upgrade the, the ore you know in our case well you know it deposits like this from say you know 0.3 percent nickel to 20 percent nickel where a laterite deposit starts with around one percent you know one and a half percent nickel dry with a third water which makes the one percent product um, that you have to all dump into a furnace. You know, and, and you don't get any upgrading initially. So, um, you know, th- those are the sort of the two two sets of costs, or sort of two the way the deposits are structured um, in 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 two ways. And then historically, it was either Ferrinickel for laterites or um, uh, or um, integrated producers for sulfides. But you know, now that the fact that you have these different market channels opening up. You know, those companies that are able to find an edge to make another five or ten percent of the price and have that come back to you know back to them and back to their shareholders, then you know you're going to have uh, you know you know th- those those operations you know should should do well going
0: forward, okay? So let me get this right so yeah. ladder rights, which is about 70 70 percent of um in terms of volume globally, that those yeah. are it, it's literally I should say moving dirt, right? It's but yeah. they're big, expensive. Capex-intensive uh, projects, typically, right? Yeah. So you, and again, yep. just we know there's sort of a you know billion bucks minimum, but usually go on to be a lot more than that, depending on on the scale. Even though you're putting the the the, the operation on top of the of the ore body, they, they are seriously expensive in terms of opex, a uh, capex. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. That's in in most of the world. The one innovation that Chinese did with Indonesia is. Um, you know, the Western companies would always try and build the biggest furnace ever built. Right? Every new plant had the biggest furnace ever. The Chinese kind of said, "Oh, that's nonsense. We'll just—we've already got one that works. We'll just make—we'll just copy and paste that twenty times because we know the cost of the twentieth is going to be a lot less than the cost of the first one." So, so they've kind of made it much more scalable. Um, but um, you know, it's still a pretty hefty—it's a multi-hundred-million-dollar price tag for the Chinese. and Asian ticket.
0: To get started. And that's because so it's multi multi um, hundred million. So it's not necessarily a billion, but that's because it's sitting on top of the body.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Great. Okay. So yeah. as an investor I'm thinking, am I likely am I more likely or more unlikely to be investing in a last right project if I'm interested in nickel?
1: So there's one there's one one example. Um so nickel mines is basically joint ventured with Ching Shan. So they basically own a portion of Ching Shan's plant in Indonesia. It effectively allows Ching Shan to give a market window on the economics of their business. That's why it makes sense for Ching Shan to do that deal. So um, that, you know, you know th- that is is um, that's a way to get exposure to a market leader. In that case, uh, the other way to do it, you've got a few pure plays like PT&Co, um, where again they've got a, a large resource and a pool of sunk capital. So you, as an investor. Benefit from the fact that they built that plant back in you know the 70s, you know expanded it in the 90s and expanded again in the 2000s. So you know you know you, there's not as much a, you know you actually see some free cash flow because they're not having to continually reinvest it um, in the business. But then you know a lot of the other Ladderite projects you know are embedded into other you know larger companies um, uh, and you know, there again there aren't a ton of new, you know, there's a, there's only a handful of, of standalone nickel laterite projects as well. So um, you know, it's not you know, there's not a not a, not a lot of waste for, for investors to, to to play this play this base broadly. Okay, so I guess the thing
0: that terrifies me is you gotta pay that money back. So if you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars at best and probably into the billions of dollars And you got to pay that back. It's going to take a long time, or you got to have a big operation to do that. So, me as an investor, I'm I'm, I'm looking at that, and that's the thing that makes me nervous. But let's talk. Let's come on to uh, sulfide operations, because again, there, you know, companies that um, are building these things, they they need to have access to a plant. Either they build it, or they have access to it down the road. And you know margins are controlled there. So again, for sulphide companies, if I'm thinking of investing in sulphide companies, what are the things I should be looking out for in terms of their ability to control cost?
1: Yeah. So the key thing there's again, you've got sort of two two groups. There are basically people are are either just mine or mine mill operations that are sort of feeded into a chain. And there's a you know a number of companies in Western Australia uh, who operate there. Um, The the key thing there is you just need to be able to see what their operating costs are relative to, um, you know, the 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 um, you know where nickel prices are and you know are they able to negotiate terms with the downstream person that they have to supply to to actually earn any profit. Um, The thing that is changing and I think that's what's going to be you know somewhat appealing to 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 um, sulfides in general is. Again, for the electric vehicle sector, you're going to see a bunch of processing capacity developed to convert nickel in whatever form it is in into a product for the battery sector. So the oligopoly will start to break down over the next three to five years. So you know nickel sulfide resources in, in, in my view will inherent as that oligopoly breaks down and more value flows back to the miner, the, res- the value of the sulfide resource in the ground will, will increase. Um, significantly relative, you know well as those options become um, you know available uh, you know to the market. Um, you know the the other part, you know even a lot of sulfide operations, you know the nickel is is a fairly capital intensive business um, all the way around. and so you know one of the challenges of investing in laterite versus sulfide is just happens to be where these deposits are typically located. Again, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you have to make a significant capital investment, again, you know, in, in iron ore, BHP, Rio Tinto, those are hugely profitable businesses, but they have to make that upfront investment, but they're able to do that because they're operating in Australia, you know, they have 50-years reserve, you know, and they're going to just mint a huge amount of free cash flow, you know, over that, that time period, without any risk that, that that project will be either physically or economically confiscated by the local government or, the, you know, the, the, fed, you know, the, the, the country. You know, sulfide deposits, you know, they're tent, you know, you find them in, in lower risk political jurisdictions. So again in Canada, you can spend a billion dollars knowing that the government's not gonna change the rules on you and, and make it impossible for you to realize that cash flow. You know, again, I would you know caution people when you're looking at laterite projects, just look at that jurisdiction to see, okay, you know, if they are able to raise the billion dollars to build the plant, is there any risk that the government's going to do something to you know to uh you know, confiscate um, you know, some of the value there. You know, in the copper space, you know, those companies that, you know, tried to operate in the Congo and Zambia, you know, for many decades it's been a you know it's been, you know, pretty challenging um during that time frame. You know, and there are, you know, other jurisdictions where there are collateral deposits that are, you know, almost as challenging as those countries. But it's I mean
0: it's still still a lot of money. It you mentioned it's a billion dollars, right? That's a lot of money. So, you know, as a lender when a market like nickel, which is quite volatile, what are you? What's, what are the comforting factors? Because how do I know I'm going to at least not lose my money, let alone be able to expect to be repaid uh, the the whatever uh, you know coupon I'm charging for it? What are those comfort factors? I mean, you've been in negotiations. All yeah. through your career, you know, um, bankers don't understand nickel like you do. They they can look at the numbers and uh, that's it. So, what are the questions they ask you? What should question? What, what questions should we be asking companies?
1: It's really about where you are on the cost curve. Like again, you know, you don't fear big producers. You know, who are to the right of you on the on the cost curve. As long as they're willing to turn that production off, then if you're to the left of them and lower cost. Then you're going to continue to make money across the cycle. So, you know that's that's where, um, you know, as a lender, they're going, you know, they're going to, you know, they look at cost curves and they're going to say, okay, you know, we're, you know, we're going to assume that, you know, prices will drop to a point somewhere on that cost curve for a period of time, and we need to, we'll test your project to see how much cash comes out of it. You know, if 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 that sort of worst case scenario happens on the cost curve, so, you know, that's. That's what you need to look at. You don't want, you know, in today's market with the China-Indonesia going on, you don't want anything that's in the same spot on the cost curve or to the right of that. That's you know, n- you know, not going to get funded, you know, in our lifetime. But if you're to the left there, and if you're sufficiently to the left there, then those become, you know, very, very, very attractive investments. You know, what helps make iron ore such a profitable business is that you have a big chunk of iron ore production in China, which is relatively high cost and continues to sort of, you know, come in and out of the market. And so what that does is okay, you know, at $85 a ton, you know, at 85 or 80 or 70 or $65 a ton, you have this Chinese production that you know, kicks in or kicks off. And so it keeps, it keeps um, iron ore prices at a relatively high level to say, I'm if I'm producing in Western Australia for $20 a ton, you know, I know as BHP, as long as that's production is helping sort of buffer, you know, buffer changes in supply demand, then I am going to print money, you know, all day long, and and it's the same thing, um, you know, in you know in all the commodities, is you just want to make sure that you are you understand where that swing capacity is, what the cash costs look like, and then where you stack up relative to that okay,
0: so yeah. okay, mark, I just want to ask um about the nickel market you know it's, I think it'd be quite easy to talk about generalities of you know the risks in mining here, but with yeah. nickel, these are such big projects we 've talked about billions yeah. of dollars or or at the very least hundreds of millions of dollars projects there 's not that many of them it 's not like gold mining we 're getting into you know first poor with a gold mine it 's not like copper these are well understood well trodden lots of them. There's not that many people in nickel, uh, you know, involved in building nickel mines and plants, etc. So, uh, and, it, and it touched upon something we um, were covering in the uranium space recently, where some of the old hands were saying, you know, there are skills being lost in the market because there aren't that many new mines we put into production. There is that the case with nickel.
1: Yeah, no. This outside of sort of China, Indonesia, and again, there's you know there's thousands of new engineers in China who understand nickel. um, You know, but in the rest of the world, because rest of the world production has been shrinking during this time frame, that's definitely the case. And again, as an investor, you know, I really pay attention to you know the people involved in the project. You know, because again, it's not it is not like copper and gold where. You know, I you know I can find 25 people who've done it, and just grab one of them, and they can help build this mine for me. You know, in terms of um, you know processing nickel, and there's been some some huge disasters in the past um, that have made you know in you know big real money investors are a little more cautious in this space so you know that's something I would definitely definitely zero in on you know as, as you're going through looking at the you know different different opportunities for uh, nickel investing
0: so being there done it for built a plant got into production very yeah. important because not many people outside of China and Indonesia as you say have done that so yeah. that, that's a great point to make and just sort of on a similar theme here again when we've Looked at some of the uh, nickel companies, the public, li- uh, publicly listed nickel companies. We're looking; they've got the PFs, they've got well, scoping study, the PFs, the FS. These they look great on paper, but I'm seeing them sitting around, and no one's putting the money in.
1: Why? Yeah, no, that's that's again, a, a really. I would, it's the toughest part. Again, people see 43101 or Jork and think that, okay, you know, that there's, it's been approved by somebody. Um, Again, at the end of the day, it's whoever you, you know, is comfortable to sign off on those numbers um, and accept the payment as a third party, you know, engineer on that report to sign off on it. That's it. You know, as long as they they meet the minimum standard to be someone who can sign those reports, then they can sign those reports. It has no real comment on the validity of of, of the numbers that are in there, on particularly on the engineering side, the resource stuff. There's a bunch of very dis- rigorous standards that have to be followed. But once you get into the operating and capital costs, you know, then it gets very fuzzy very quickly. So I would really encourage people when you when you're looking at a company and you see a technical report, look. Who did the technical report? You know, is it a company that just does studies, um, or is it a company that does studies and builds actually built projects? Because you know those companies that actually build projects, you know, they know they may be on the hook for them, or someone's going to compare another project of theirs to the one they just wrote about. So you know, you get a much more realistic capital and operating cost numbers out of those really good you know quality engineering firms. Again, if you really want to do your homework, just see. Just Google that engineering firm and just see what of the other projects they've done and, and, and how they've gone relative to those to those numbers. because um, you know, again, it's a red flag when you, you know, again, market conditions may cause a project to get delayed for a period of time just because you know pricing's nowhere near where it needs to be to allow pro- new projects to get going. But then the other part of it is if you see a project, geez, if it's, you know it's 50% after tax return you know, um, projects, um, you know, why hasn't it been financed? If it's been sitting on the shelf for a while, there's probably some real issues with both the capital um, and operating cost numbers that, that, that the real money people just go, oh, you know, I, I don't want you know, to take away that. Because the reality is, there's been an a range of mining companies over my career. You know, if you get an after-tax return on a reasonable price deck, you know, for a large-scale project in the mid-teens that's a good number these 25 30 percent after tax you do get some of them and, and they you know can be smaller or high grade ones but again once you start to get to any kind of scale you know, you, you, you very quickly get down into kind of you know typical mid, mid-teens type returns unless there's some sort of either deposit breakthrough or technology breakthrough that you know you know m- is a step change in, in, in operating costs relative to the rest of the sector
0: okay so like management, been there, done it before, track record, you need to know that the person signing this off knows what they're talking about. It's not just theory, they've done it. Got it. Yeah. Good. Let's talk about, um, if you don't mind, we're just going to finish off on this one, which is the around the automotive industry. Okay. So we're looking at different ecosystems being built around the world. There's the kind of China ecosystem. Europe is yep. building up its ecosystem. The U.S. is building up its own ecosystem, and there's, there's a little bit of protectionism in this. But, yep. but you know, which you know, whatever we all think of that in terms of trade wars and so forth, it it is what it is. Yep. It exists, so we've got to, we've got to deal with it. So what I'm seeing is that these different ecosystems don't necessarily want to rely for any component. Outside of their own ecosystem, okay. So, you know, European yeah. automotive manufacturers don't want to rely on China or Indonesia necessarily for their nickel. So that's a great, so there's a great opportunity outside of China for producers, uh, owners of, of, of nickel, um, to actually feed into these different ecosystems. So, um, what's is what's your sense of what's going on there? You know, do you see opportunities?
1: Oh yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, you know, from discussions in a past life when we were advancing, um, you know, looking at Dumont, you know, the 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 battery supply chains that are outside of China very much want non-Chinese access to non-Chinese supply, and so you know, again, part of the reason I'm here with Canada and nickel is, you know, you know, this is one of those real true market opportunities because you know the United States has no nickel mines, uh, Europe has one, um, you know, significant nickel operation, um, and so. You know, and you know, East Asia outside of um, has been is outside of China has been squeezed out by China in, in most of the key supply regions. So the ability to provide nickel supply into one or more of those ecosystems, um, you know, is a huge benefit. So again, being in Canada sort of got access to both um, Europe and North America, and it's not too far from Korea and Japan as well. So you know, I, you know, I think that's a massive opportunity to be around the edges in a low risk jurisdiction to be able to provide that supply to the market you know, needs. And, you know, and another dimension of this that we're going to be talking about um, some more in coming months is again, is, is the environmental footprint. You know, Indonesia is this massive new source of supply but it takes a lot of coal um, to, to turn that soggy dirt into a you know a piece of Nickel. And so again, as the you know EV markets, you know, starts to matter more, you know, how is, you know, are people going to be starting to look at, at those kind of dimensions? We, you know, we think they are. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that, you know, that's one of the key things that people are going to have to start thinking about, you know, another 3, 6, 12 months out here.
0: Okay. Interesting, Mark. Well, look, there we go. That wraps up another week. It's been a quiet week, but I think there's a Makes lot sense. lot to discuss there. And I think what you're going to help us with as well is just, again, yeah. just getting used to this vocabulary, uh, the terminology, the things that are important, the things that are not important, um, and maybe go some clues with, you know, as investors, the things that we should be, you know, pointing at and going, okay, that, that looks good or, or, or not good. So looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Nope, sp- it'll be good. And how's um and how are things at uh, Canada Nickel? We caught up with you last week. It sounds sounds
1: like you've got exciting uh, few months ahead of you. Yep. Oh no, drilling's going well. Metallurgy work going well, and then on track for a PEA by the end of the year. And again, to my point around the engineering firm, you know, we're working with Asenco. Um, they are, you know, they've built a bunch of large scale um, sulfide processing mills, you know, and and. Their team was involved in the you know, ramping up Mount Keith in the mid 1990s, which was sort of the, the breakthrough in terms of these larger scale, lower grade operations, and it, you know operated successfully for 25 years. So, um, you know, having tapped into that, that experience is, is is what we want to be able to again to build a project we can actually build and get financed. So
0: beautiful, Mark. Thanks again. Appreciate your time. We'll speak to you next week.
1: All right. Thank you, sir. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast